Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations. My name is Dr Johnny Bargett and I'm a TNC member and tonight I'm delighted to welcome Mr James Milburn and Dr Umesh Basavarju who are going to talk to us and enlighten us about how to approach the patient with painful or painless jaundice. I would just like to welcome you both and if you could just introduce yourselves for the listeners please. Thanks, Johnny. I would like to thank you and the college for asking me to talk regarding this topic. I'm Dr. Umesh Basavaraju. I'm a consultant gastroenterologist based at Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. And my main area of interest is interventional endoscopy in biliary and pancreatic conditions. I'm James Milburn. I'm a consultant general surgeon and hepatobiliary surgeon, again, based in Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. And thanks for inviting me today. I'm looking forward to the session. It's great to have you both on the podcast. And really what I'd like to ask you both is why is this so important? Why are we talking about jaundice, specifically painful and painless jaundice in this podcast tonight? From my position as a surgeon, we know that biliary emergencies, pancreatitis, cholangitis, the sphere of a emergency biliary presentation is extremely common, makes up about a third of referrals to the general surgery emergency team. So it's extremely common clinical presentation that passes through my department. And it's important to share knowledge and understanding to help improve the patient pathways, to improve outcomes for these patients. It's a, it's a critical part of what I do on a daily basis in my department. And Mesh. So from a gastroenterology perspective, patients present with painless or painful jaundice in various settings. It could be in acute admissions, in emergency departments, but also through the general practice and sometimes due to a general medical ward and directly to gastroenterology ward. Uh, what is important is due to the severe nature of these conditions and how quickly these patients can deteriorate, uh, for all levels of medical staff, it is important to be able to assess these patients in a timely manner and seek expert help in a timely manner so that they can improve the outcomes in these patients. It's really key that we've talked about patient outcomes because that's really what we're talking about. That's why we're doing this. And really, the outline of this episode of this podcast, I'm really talking to you about how we're assessing these patients that come in with jaundice you know, in the front door, in the acute medical unit, in the emergency department, and hopefully talk about some cases and specifically some interventions that you would do or a management just in general, and any top tips for the general medic or the general physician assessing them. So just going back to the basics really is, Amesh, how are we defining jaundice? What is jaundice? So jaundice is a clinical condition where uh, skin, sclera, and the mucous membranes uh, turn yellow. And this is due to the high level of bilirubin, uh, which uh, we all know that uh, it's a bile pigment. And bile uh, is secreted by the liver uh, 
And in any liver conditions or even biliary conditions, patients can have jaundice. So I think it's useful just to have that awareness of what we're talking about and really just in terms of how we're assessing the patient that comes in through the front door with jaundice. And James, I'd just like to start with a case, if that's okay. Yes, absolutely. So you said that you're seeing these kind of patients day in, day out. It's your bread and butter. And really, I think the patient outcomes are really important here. And I've got a case that could come into the medical take and then maybe referred to yourself. This may be familiar to you, this kind of case. So the first case, I'd just like to say we're in the acute medical unit and you have been asked to come and assess a patient who's come in with presumed biliary sepsis. So that's kind of what the referral was, the SBAR referral to you was, and they're wanting to get your guidance. So it's a 40-year-old lady who has come in with an episode of non-specific malaise. She's essentially unwell for the last week or so with grumbling fever, grumbling pain in her right upper quadrant, and it's been coming and going. It sounds severe nature, and it can at times go up into her shoulder tips. It's fairly classical of that, but she's now feeling really quite washed out, lethargic, but still in pain. So mainly complaining of pain. And she's seen her GP and coming through the acute medical unit because she's unwell, she's needing assessment. And when you go through the history, just before we go a bit into more specifics, she's had episodes like this previously in the last year. She said she's had two episodes where she's had pain like this, which is self-resolved. She never has been jaundiced. Her husband noted that on this occasion she was jaundiced when she had the pain, and that's one of the things that prompted the admission. And when you assess her, she's talking and in pain. She's had some IV morphine, and her new score is elevated, so she has no oxygen requirement, just that's normal, but respirates around 22. Her blood pressure's 90 over 50, and she's had a litre of IV crystalloid so far. Her heart rate's about 100 in sinus rhythm. Her blood pressure hasn't really responded. She's cool peripherally and her temperature was initially up to 39 when she first came in and it's, it's not really budged and, and examining her this is from the referral from the medics she's got right upper corner tenderness and possibly some paratism or, or guarding so that's the sort of the case how it was presented to you what's your initial thoughts and how would you approach this patient it's a good a common scenario that we see and, uh, and like any approach to of course you approach with an ABC kind of approach but hit all the key points which you know come through there because this is a 40 year old woman with pain interestingly obviously you said previous episodes that you've mentioned jaundice worse some vomiting nausea and the picture describing with the observations of course give you a cause of her concern so you know you're you're getting a hand over this patient as you've done you're approaching the mindset you know this acute biliary sepsis so, of course, there are more questions to answer and to go through. But your initial assessment is, you know, has this patient got acute biliary sepsis? An initial kind of ABC approach to assessment, the resuscitation. You mentioned about crystalloid and going to see her and taking a bit more of a history about some of these episodes, examination, as you've described. But then thinking about how you can move forward an investigation strategy. So my initial thoughts are that, you know, has this lady got gallstones? Does this lady have potential for having CBD stones or some compression of her bile duct if she's visibly jaundiced initial impression? And obviously, if markers are maybe wonder, obviously, about superimposed infection in this setting. 
Yeah, so the main workup that the, the team have performed already is like sepsis management. And they've done all the, the correct things. They've taken blood cultures, they've taken bloods, including a venous lactate, and IV cannula have been inserted. Fluid has been initially given as a bolus as per sepsis guidelines. And um, a catheter has been broached but hasn't been inserted yet. And as I said, no oxygen requirement at the moment. And so we've kind of hit all the markers there, but we're worried about this lady having potentially the need for a vasopressor, but she's still only a litre into her phase of treatment. She's had some triple therapy antibiotics, so standard mm-hmm. cocktail of amoxicillin, metronidazole and IV gentamicin before you've seen her. So in terms of the workup, what are the key things that you're wanting to do here, James? You mentioned about initial antibiotics and things like that, but obviously about workup investigations, full blood count, coagulation screens, a picture of sepsis, jaundice will affect her coagulation cascade, thinking about her LFTs, her urine electrolytes, CRP as a marker infection, amylase to check for the potential for pancreatitis as well as the pause for the jaundice and the picture that you see if she's got inflammatory swelling at the head of the pancreas. Depending on the time and things like that and the clinical picture, the first investigation normally setting would be an ultrasound examination. And the purpose of that is to look to see are gallstones present, but also for the dilatation of the CBD as well, which is a key marker of how you might investigate this and can lead you on to further strategy. So we are fortunate in that we have had an abdominal ultrasound scan performed pretty quickly, actually. And the key things are that the patient was quite tender during the exam, in the upper quadrant specifically. What kind of things are, are you looking for here? You've talked about the CBD, common bile duct. What are we talking about and what are we looking for and what do you want to know as the assessing surgeon? So when we're looking at the gallbladder, of course, the presence of gallstones, you can sometimes see sludge and debris. You want to know about the thickness of the gallbladder wall. Is it thickened? Is it, is it thin? What evidence of previous or recurrent inflammation there? Pericholocystic fluid and ultrasound is a very sensitive marker as well of acute inflammatory response there. There can be difficulties assessing the CBD and the common hepatic duct in an ultrasound, you know, depending upon the body habitus of the patient. Depending on, you know, there's the a lot of um, some data, but really up to about seven millimetres in size for a normal CBD, but it can increase with different factors as well. But you're looking to see, is there a dilatation above this? You also want information about the liver itself, if you can, any patient who's jaundiced, are there nodular coarse features, evidence of fibrosis or anything else like that might affect your judgment of the cause of why the patient might be jaundiced. But the key features are around the actual gallbladder and bile duct itself. The ultrasound is not a good imaging modality for the pancreas, but sometimes you can give some information about it. But obviously, that's a further imaging modality needed to assess that. So, so that's really helpful. I think one of the things I would really like to discuss is when do we use different types of imaging, um, specifically, you know, abdominal ultrasound scan compared to a CT, or in what circumstances would we advise for any other type of imaging? And that's specifically about, you know, MRCP or um, MRI imaging. I think it does depend upon the status. You mentioned there about resuscitation requirements, potential for vasopressors, about some of the clinical status of the patient. Because if this patient is stabilizing and stable and the ultrasound is suggesting gallstones, a dilated CBD leading you to the diagnosis of cholangitis, potential CBD stones, that's when an MRCP be indicated to give you the best assessment whether there's cholodocolothiasis present. And it also give you further information about the gallbladder and anatomy in that area. 
if you have an unwell patient who's deteriorating, a CT is sometimes a, a rapid assessment. Now, it does not have the assessment of the, uh, and because of the radiolucency of stones, the assessment of whether CD stones are present, but it can give you a lot of information quickly. For example, if the deteriorating septic patient might have a gallbladder perforation or another, you know, kind of complications that's assessing. But for this setting with jaundice, and if gallstones are shown, that um, an MRCP would be the next step. So that's really helpful. And I guess that ties into the management decisions, really. So, Amesh, I was just wondering if you could give your thoughts on that. What kind of scenarios do you see whenever you're assessing these kind of patients? What kind of differentials might there be? So, you know, this patient, as you have highlighted, uh, clearly has sepsis. And if the ultrasound has shown gallstones with uh, dilated intrahepatic or common bile duct, if the patient is stable, the patient uh, goes on to have uh, MRCP as per the NICE uh, guidelines. And if the MRCP shows there is a presence of common bile duct stones, then given the patient is septic and there is presence of jaundice with obstructive LFTs, the next crucial step in the management would be proceeding to removing the stones in the bile duct, which will be by the procedure called ERCP. And the timing of is important because the sooner we you know, stabilize the patient with antibiotics and intravenous fluids and then remove the source of sepsis by doing ERCP, sphincterotomy, and common bile duct stone extraction, the patient's chances of having a good outcome are more. So that's really useful. So I guess, you know, with how we've resuscitated this lady, she's actually beginning to respond to her intravenous fluids now. And the critical care team in the hospital have assessed her and they've reviewed her, but feel that she has more room for resuscitation and she's actually improving. So they don't feel that she needs to go to ICU for any circulatory support. So what were your thoughts on that, James? And where does this lady need to go or get transferred to the surgical ward or do the gastroenterologists manage this kind of patient in your hospital? I think it's a good question because I think sometimes it depends on local pathways within the hospital setting. I think for most hospitals in the UK, for a patient with suspected cholangitis, admission to the general surgical unit would probably be the normal standard, unless she's known or our local pathways are different. And that's usually because, as I said at the start, acute biliary sepsis and related conditions are very much a bread and butter patient within the general surgical ward and building up familiarity with their care. So I think the key thing that I'm getting from your discussion here is that it's a surgical presentation, but there is MDT involvement with the gastroenterologists. Amesh, what are your thoughts on that? And how would you go about managing this patient if there was this stone, say, within the cystic duct or one of the common bile ducts? I agree. The management is very much multidisciplinary and based on local availability of different levels of care. If there is a hospital where there is no surgical high-dependency unit, the ideal place for this patient is a medical high-dependency unit with close input by our surgical colleagues. But if there is a surgical HDU, then the patient will be transferred to the surgical HDU. But this is where the, I wouldn't say just the medical endoscopist, because we have many surgical endoscopists who do ERCP as well. As long as there is an interventional endoscopist who will be able to do ERCP, so this team should be approached in a timely manner 
and all the necessary initial you know workup has to be done based on coagulation you know correction of coagulation etc and once the patient is stabilized in a appropriate you know either medical or surgical hdu then the plan should be to do a timely ercp great and for our listeners what is ercp and what kind of things does that involve so ERCP is an endoscopic and radiological technique. So it's endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatogram, although, you know, the pancreatogram is not routinely done. So we most often do this in the radiology department, but done by an endoscopist. And we plan to, you know, cannulate the common bile duct using the duodenoscope and then do fluoroscopy images, which is what the cholangiogram part of it, to identify, for example, in this case, if there is common bile duct stones, uh, to see the location and number of common bile duct stones, and then go on to perform an endoscopic sphincterotomy and extract the stones in the bile duct. So ERCP is an interventional endoscopy for managing biliary and pancreatic conditions. That's really great overview. I guess one of the things that we've not really got into is just the basic blood work. And as you said about correcting coagulopathy, this lady's coag screen has come back before you see her and her INR is 1.6. She's not on any anticoagulants. And in her past medical history, as I say, that she's got a history of gastroesophageal reflux disease, but very little else. And her LFTs, when they come back, her bilirubin is actually... 200 and her alkaline phosphatase is 350 with ALT of about 100 and an AST of 110 and a gamma GE of 100. Her creatinine is 150 and her EGFRs are around 45 and she's never had any use and ease checked before. Vital count is 16, neutrophilia of about 14 and CRP is sitting at 200. So how does that change things and what's your approach to her care if you do go ahead to do an ERCP and that's to the both of you? So in this instance, you mentioned the INR is 1.6, and ideally you would like the INR to be less than 1.5 before we consider a sphincterotomy. So we would uh, intervene as uh, vitamin K, and normally we give 10 milligram and uh, correct it. What is very noticeable here or of concern is her being in acute kidney injury with an EGFR of 45. So if we are proceeding with an intervention like ERCP, which uh, can have complications, which we can allude to later on, it is important that the patient is adequately hydrated. And so she should be resuscitated uh, appropriately. And uh, then uh, we proceed with ERCP. And so you go ahead to perform an ERCP. And in terms of that procedure, what are the kind of things that could happen? How could her pathway advance in her journey? What might we expect in terms of what the intervention and treatment do for her? So we get the referral for ERCP, we do the vetting and we list the patient for the next available list. Obviously, there is no on-call service for ERCP in most of the UK hospitals. So that's a different you know, aspect altogether, which can be discussed at length. But it is important for any hospital to have a timely ERCP service. So we list the patient for the next available list. And what happens during the procedure is major 
majority of the ERCPs in the UK are done by conscious sedation delivered by endoscopists. So we give a combination of midazolam and fentanyl as conscious sedation for the patient. And then we aim to cannulate the common bile duct and we do the cholangiogram using you know, the contrast material and biliary sphincterotomy is the key here. And we do biliary sphincterotomy, which is adequate to extract the stones depending on the size of the stones. And the aim of the ERCP is to clear the bile duct of all the uh, stones present in the bile duct. So this should be the aim. But there are some situations when uh, if the stone size is more than, for example, one centimeter, we may not be able to clear in the first instance. But in this particular case, the primary aim is biliary drainage. That could be either clearing the stones if possible or inserting a plastic stent to achieve biliary drainage. And in terms of other considerations, we know ERCP is associated with risks of pancreatitis. So preventing pancreatitis is important. And anytime we do a sphincterotomy, prophylaxis against pancreatitis should be considered. And these patients should be getting rectal diclofenac, and there is new evidence suggesting that giving the rectal diclofenac prior to the ERCP is more beneficial in preventing post-ERCP pancreatitis. So these patients, unless there is any contraindication for giving rectal diclofenac, these patients should be getting rectal diclofenac. That's really useful just to be aware of that. And really, I guess just in those cases, what percentage of patients might get pancreatitis? And in that situation, James, what do we do there? Do we discuss with you and how might that patient journey advance in that situation? I think, as you say, it's dependent upon the patient factor. For patients post ERC pancreatitis, of course, naturally, historically, these patients have always come to the surgical department as well for review, but they can be managed in any critical care facility with clinicians who are experienced in their care. Obviously, there can be a mix between more common sort of mild episodes following this procedure, but they've already got evidence of multi-organ dysfunction. But there can obviously be the concern about the 20% who can develop severe pancreatitis and have progressed to life-threatening multi-organ dysfunction. Of course, in this clinical setting, you've got to weigh up the risks and balances of doing the ERCP because if the patient's come in already unwell and critically needing care intervention, then of course it's got to be supported as the first-line treatment for this patient. So that's really good. I guess just in terms of the case, things go well and this lady's jaundice improves, her sepsis improves and she begins to feel better. What are the guidelines on whether this lady should have a review with yourself, James? Does this lady need cholecystectomy at any point or what are your thoughts on how, how she should be managed in the future? Uh, absolutely. She's come in with acute biliary sepsis. As you've got proven, you know, kind of CBD stones has had an intervention. Of course, she'll require a surgical consult at some time regarding cholecystectomy. There is a big move in accordance with NICE to go to acute management of acute biliary conditions. And this lady has been in the high dependency unit. She's obviously had organ dysfunction. And this is where if she hadn't you know, been fitter and more well, shall we say, then often we'd be thinking about doing this on index admission as we move to more single stop care for all, all modalities. And that's where there have been a pressure in different times regarding availability of access to theatre. But for this patient in this setting, with a control of her, her bile duct, the more important, I think, to get her better, to make sure that she recovers back to her full health, and then consider a laparoscopic cholecystectomy as the next step in our management. 
That's great. I guess we've kind of talked a lot about painful jaundice now, and I'd like to talk about a case of, of painless jaundice, if that's okay. Again, the city's come into the medical units. She's 72, and she's presented with painless jaundice, which has been building up for the last week or so. She presents to the ambulatory care department, and the GP had referred her for an abdominal ultrasound scan previously for worsening jaundice, but she's now just essentially becoming deep yellow and the team have been asked to assess her. What are your thoughts on this, both of you? What are we worried about here? What are we thinking? Again, this is a common presentation that we see on GP referrals. And as soon as you mention about painless jaundice, of course, there are concerns going through your head regarding underlying diagnosis here. We could talk a bit more about kind of red flag symptoms in the setting. But naturally, the concern is, is there an underlying biliary obstruction? Is this an underlying pancreatic mass, pancreatic cancerous lesion? And that will need urgent assessment and imaging, usually through an urgent suspected cancer pathway. And so... This is something that the general medic might experience coming across this patient. How do we advance their care? This lady's now deeply jaundiced. We're thinking that we need to admit her to the hospital and image her. What kind of process would you expect to happen for this lady and in terms of time to imaging? What's the right imaging we want to do for this lady? And in terms of red flags, just what's your kind of overview of those things to look out for, James? I think, as you say, that like similarly in the last case, you know, focusing on a full structured history, going through the presentation of jaundice, time, risk factors, malignancy, smoking history, duration of onset. You know, there, a lot of these things are key facets to the history. But also when you're wondering about underlying atrial malignancy, thinking about how they had vomiting, how they lost weight, do they have uh, early satiety? Do they have other cardinal features? And sometimes patients will present with malabsorption, you know, and, and I mean, as well, and uh, significant weight loss. So taking a key component of these. But other things sometimes, for example, like melina or other kind of facets, they might have any progenic bleeding as well in the context of progenic malignancy. Full structure examination as well, obviously, the palpation of their epigastrium and looking to obviously you know, can assess for signs of their weight loss. But realistically, the next imaging investigative modality once done the usual blood test we've outlined is a CT, abdomen, pelvis and chest. Now, when it comes to assessment of the pancreas, beneficial effect is having arterial and venous phases on the imaging as well as a non-contrast. And that's usually best specifically requested as a CT pancreas. The radiologist can know to do specific phases to check primarily vast relationships around the head of the pancreas, but also, as I say, to give full staging of the chest and the pelvis too. That's great. So, James, from what you're saying, imaging is really important and the phasing of the contrast. So, in terms of the greater story here, this lady, she lives alone, but her daughter has concerns about her ability to care for herself at the moment. She's losing weight. She's lost over three stones of weight in the last three months, and she's now not able to eat. And she is developing really some constant nausea, and she's really just not doing anything. She's not leaving the house and is needing support. She is starting to vomit intermittently, sort of low volumes, just mainly food stuff and, and fluids, but is now starting to develop some, some kind of bilious vomiting as you see her in the MAU. And the CT scan has come back, which has shown a lesion that is interfering with the duodenum and concern about a pancreatic abnormality, which is suspicious of tumour. So what kind of thoughts are going through your head? Is this a common scenario that you would see in your practice, James? It's a common scenario. I think you've said a lot of the key words there for the listeners in that, you know, this lady's frail. You know, we were talking about leaving her house. Second, you know, kind of key point is that she's lost weight, that she's been vomiting. 
And from a functional physiological point of view, that with pancreas cancer, that patients can often rapidly deteriorate, their functional status can deteriorate. And that's always got to be a crucial factor in management and how you assess the patient is what modalities for you know kind of treatment are available, if any, in this setting. But you have to obviously always go into a, you know, a structured approach with the CNS input, obviously, and you mentioned there about the CT scan showing head of pancreas area and whether it's maybe potentially causing some gastric outflow obstruction. And essentially this lady now has got evidence of biliary obstruction, but also gastric outflow obstruction. And this would be something that you are effectively seeing at a relatively advanced state to, from what you've described. And that coupled to her freely would also give me some you know, concerns and I'd be keen to meet with the patient, the doctor, make sure all the appropriate you know, uh, assessments have been done to have some you know, discussions. And that would obviously be part of a multidisciplinary meeting as well to get all stakeholders involved if a pancreas cancer was suspected in the setting. Yeah, and I guess one of the things I've not really specifically gone into is the biochemistry, just to put it into context of the numbers as well, just so the listeners are aware that when the bilirubin comes back and it's over 300 and the gamma TT has come back at over 300 as well. And when you looked at the liver in the PAX imaging, there's been a report of a possible metastases within the liver in this patient. So you've mentioned a lot of those aspects. How does that information change things and where would you take things from here? I think it's important to have MDT assessment for the imaging we reviewed, but when you have this clinical setting of an elderly patient with frailty, with initial reports suggesting metastatic disease, you know that treatment options are limited from the outset here, not just on account of frailty, but obviously in the presence of a metastatic pancreatic cancer. You know, the, the key thing, obviously, is to have a holistic approach to it, to assess the patient. But realistically, you next thing to be assessing will be an option for endoscopic decompression of the biliary tree. But of course, the question mark will lie about the gas out obstruction, whether endoscopic routes are accessible. But obviously, try to act in the best interest of the patient, sure that some of the interventions may change numbers, but, you know, making sure that you don't cause harm to the patient as well at the same time. Yeah, I think the key thing is patient-centred care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is this something that you get referrals about? in the gastroenterology clinic or the urgent cancer clinic? Yeah, we are fortunate to have uh, a fast-track uh, jaundice clinic, which is a direct uh, access for uh, general practitioners to consultant uh, gastroenterologists. So we have uh, the fast-track jaundice clinic, which runs uh, once a week uh, on a specific uh, day of the week. And this is managed by a liver specialist nurse and a consultant uh, hepatologist. So the GP referral comes through online. We use the track care system, which is picked up very promptly and and the patients come very quickly to this clinic, which has got dedicated after appropriate history and examination. The patient goes on to get an ultrasound and a same day CT scan. And then the report is available fairly quickly. And the consultant hepatologist who has reviewed the patient then takes forward the further management, which uh, in this context of, you know, if you are talking about somebody with metastatic uh, pancreatic cancer, the next step would be liaising with the HPB MDT to decide what is the best next step for this particular patient. That's really insightful. I guess the key things that you've both alluded to is this is quite a late presentation potentially of disease that is metastatic. From a patient perspective, what kind of things can a patient expect from here? What should we be telling the patient? I think it's always being realistic as well about things. And, and of course, I, we don't have a tissue biopsy, but in pancreas cancer, you know, we we'll often act upon imaging as the main treatment that can tell us, you know, kind of where we are. And that forms the bedrock of the MDT. 
But in the description you've provided, that you have to raise from the outset that position the patients in a palliative setting, that they have metastatic disease or from a pancreatic origin, and therefore there would be no curative intent treatment options for pancreas cancer here. You know this patient has got you know, biliary obstruction, degree of maybe gastric obstruction, and that these are the immediate concerns going forward. But it's so important to have the CNS involvement in this setting when talking to the family and our daughter to give her some realistic outlook because of the sometimes aggressiveness of pancreatic cancer. And you've obviously discussed the frailty of this patient already. It's always maintaining a realistic goal of what might be achievable by an intervention. So I think the messages that are coming through to me are it's always patient-centred care here and it's an MDT approach. I guess we've talked a lot, we've talked about different cases that could present with jaundice in the hospital or um, in the community. I'd just like to ask both of you now just for your key pearls of wisdom or advice to general internal medical trainee when approaching these kind of patients. What would your key tips be? I think as this podcast has highlighted from someone who is very heavily involved in ability pathways, I work so closely across the hospital with so many kind of departments. And I think that's a key thing to get across to trainees is that management of jaundice and different things relies upon expertise in a lot of different departments. Being able to ask whether it be critical care, whether it be interventional radiology or whether it be a lot of aspects, it's always having an MDT approach to it and making sure that you are able to access appropriate specialism for you know, challenging cases and approaching your seniors about this if there's any uncertainty about pathways for their management. That's great, James. And Imesh, do you have any additional thoughts on that? No, I completely agree. A multidisciplinary approach is what ultimately helps the patient. All the members of the multidisciplinary team are approachable. And what the trainees should remember is if they come across these kind of patients, it's the initial assessment and arriving at a diagnosis But if there is any concern, speaking to the appropriate specialist in a timely manner is so important. And when it comes to, you know, our second case where we discussed, this is where the HPB MDT, and I cannot emphasize more on the role of the clinical nurse specialist who will be a very key member of the team uh, who liaises uh, between patients, family, and the multiple specialists involved. So it is very key uh, to involve the clinical nurse specialist at an early stage when we are talking about uh, you know, a painless jaundice and malignant conditions. Thank you so much, both of you, for your expertise. And it's been really useful to discuss these cases with you. I hope this helps our listeners. And certainly it's helped me. Before we go, I just wanted to ask, do you have any other specific advice just for the general medical trainee about this kind of presentation going forwards in terms of things to be more aware of? One thing I always try to impress upon the trainees in the department is the urgency in jaundice. And in the recent times, for a variety of factors, obviously pathways, scans have been delayed, and different factors have led to some prolongation in these pathways. You know, obstructive jaundice and different testings, they are emergency conditions. And whilst we obviously aim to treat within weeks, there have been instances where people have been, you know, kind of waited longer for outpatient scans despite the presence of deep jaundice. And I think it's important to ensure that patients who are jaundiced who need rapid assessment you know, provide that. And we touched upon there, we're lucky and fortunate to have the our urgent jaundice clinic within our local institution. But it is important to always remember that jaundice is a, an urgent condition to treat and to assess because of the potential outcomes. Thank you so much, James and Dumesh. It's been an absolute pleasure and I would like to thank you both. So thank you both.
Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And um, to our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please do feel free to feedback on the usual channels. And I look forward to speaking with you on our next episode. Once again, thank you very much, Dr. Imesh Basavarju and Mr. James Milburn. Thank you. Thank you.